agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland area attorney and Republican fat codem, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Morning, Mike. How are you doing this morning? Well, I'll tell you, after, uh, as we'll discuss later today, uh, uh, in light of some of these Supreme Court rulings, I am I'm as jubilant as uh, Thomas More uh, high-fiving Thomas Beckett in the afterlife. Wow. Well, that that's a now that that's a reference that a lot of people might be scratching their heads at, but I'm proud to say our, our, I no, actually our get it. Our listeners are very well read, and <laughs> and they will they will get it. There so. you go. Okay, and I'm actually doing uh, I think okay today as well. You know, I recently unfollowed President Trump on Twitter, and I got to say that was one of the smarter things that I have done. You know, I, there was this. Every morning I would check my, I would check tweet deck and I would see the president's feed and I would get upset. And then I thought, you know, life's really too short for this sort of thing. And I don't really necessarily want to invest too much time and energy about whether or not he should have called for Bubba Wallace to apologize for something or other. And it's kind of been, it's, it's been sort of a relief to me, I got to say. So, uh. So, yeah, yeah. I've, I've never followed President Trump on Twitter. There you go. Smart, smart man, yeah. you know, smart man. Um, you know, Contrary to what many people might think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I should also mention that this was supposed to be a Trey and Ken show, but Trey had a medical thing come up uh, unexpectedly this week. And uh, I'm happy to say that it got taken care of and he is now recovering and so forth. And I'm sure everyone will join me in wishing him a getting a speedy and full, quick recovery and just wanted to let you know trey if you are listening we are thinking about we're thinking about you even if you're not listening but uh, get better soon so also we'd like to thank our newest patreon sustaining supporters um um ab abshek i hope i got that right as well as nathan i'm pretty sure i got that one right and nathan joins us joins us as an executive producer on the show which is cool oh, yeah and and abshek wrote in to say listening to the politics guys has been a constant fixture of my week for almost a year. Uh, he says, I'm left-leaning, so it's nice to listen to things outside of a liberal bubble and hear well-reasoned arguments from my positions, too. Um, I don't always agree with the things Jay says, me neither, uh, but I was pretty surprised when I found myself agreeing with him more than I thought I would, which I'm sure he'll appreciate. And there Jay, you go. Yeah, I yeah. appreciate it. Absolutely. He says, keep up the great work. You guys, Kristen, Trey, Ken, and everyone else make this an amazing podcast to listen to. It's always great to hear things like that, especially, Jay, and I know you, you feel the same way. People who are saying they really appreciate getting views that are different from what they're maybe more naturally inclined to, uh, to hearing and agreeing with. Um, and occasionally yeah. maybe even being, if not persuaded, at least uh, appreciating that, that other view. Um, yes. It was provoking thought on that. Absolutely. That's, that's, our, that's our goal. And I should mention that, of course, as a Patreon supporter, you'd only get that full length episode, second episode every week. You also get ad-free versions of our shows when we have ads, as well as various things at other levels of support. And to check it all out, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also do a one-time pledge of support through PayPal. You'll find the link there at politicsguys.com slash support. And also, if you like all of our bonus content, but you just don't have the ability to support us financially at this time, it's not a problem. Just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you all set up with that. All right. Uh, let's move on to our 
Well, surprise first story of the day. Just before we started recording this show, a Saturday morning, news broke that President Trump had commuted the sentence of Roger Stone. Now, on Tuesday, Stone was to begin a 40-month sentence for lying to Congress, witness tampering, and obstructing a congressional investigation. So, Jay, what's your reaction to this? Well, I, I guess, look, not not shocked or surprised. Um, it's it's less than a full pardon. Uh, Stone had applied for uh, what was called – he's he's 67 years old. Uh, he had applied for what's called a compassionate release. Um, which is a, a program that the, the federal courts have been really sort of inundated with a lot of applications for in the era of COVID, uh, where it says if your your age uh, or your health condition might uh, prohibit you from serving time or, or would je- jeopardize kind of life and limb, uh, you can be uh, sort of reassigned to house arrest or something like that. Uh, and as I understand, again, this was quick breaking and, and, and you know, gosh, I just woke up, Mike. Um, but that that request had been denied, and then sort of it's almost like in lieu of that, Trump has commuted the sentence, uh, but has not pardoned him, right. uh, meaning he is still convicted of the crime and and is still pursuing his remedies on appeal. So, um, I, 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 the pe- people who who don't like Trump will read this into there he is uh, uh, favoring one of his old friends. Those who are are uh, more favorably disposed. Uh, we'll say, look, this was kind of a common sense act of uh, compassion. Um, other than that, I, I don't think it, uh, it it doesn't move the needle in terms of uh, you know national politics or or uh, uh, the exercise of, of presidential powers or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I largely agree with that. You know, this uh, there there are people on the left. Adam Schiff was quoted saying a bunch of things about I think, and a lot of folks on the left about. Uh, rule of law and, and so forth, but but actually, I mean, this is this is not technically or in any way really an abuse of the president's power because that power, you know, constitutionally is just all but absolute. He can't pardon himself, but pretty much or commute his own sentence. Right. But everyone else, so and I, I don't agree with it. You know, I don't think that the power should be used to uh, let your friends off the hook. But on the other hand, if the president truly believes, uh, as he he clearly seems to believe that this entire investigation was illegitimate. Then from that, it follows that he, of course, would uh, would grant relief to anyone who he felt you know, was unjustly you know, uh, caught up in this. I mean, there's I should point out this is different from the Flynn case because there's no allegations of FBI or prosecutorial misconduct or anything sure. like that. And in fact, Roger Stone, Stone sort of reveled in his uh in his defiance, you know, he's he's uh, has a long history as kind of a dirty trickster kind of guy. He he's right, the guy Jay who has that tattoo of Nixon, doesn't he? On his I don't know somewhere on his body, I think. I'm not that fr- I I don't know him that well. I think he well he's uh you know he's just generally uh, an interesting character, sure. and I think uh, Trump uh, President Trump likes that about him very much. His strong defense and. Uh, you know, I, I feel like this is this is not an abuse of presidential power because there's a pretty clear. Uh, pretty clearly within the president's right to do this, though that that said, I think that presidential power in this area should be constrained. But of course, the only way to do that would be with a constitutional amendment. I mean, I'd be for something like uh, making uh, pardons and commutations subject to an override by like two thirds of Congress, like we do for vetoes, that kind of thing. 
just to uh, just to put members of Congress on record and also to allow Congress to check what might be uh, egregious presidential abuses of power. And so uh, you by your reaction, I guess you uh, clearly do not do not like that idea. No, I I, I don't. Uh, and, and it's basically just because, look, the the presidential power to, to commute uh, and to pardon, uh, it is something that is is very much a chief executive function. Right. And it kind of derives from, uh, you know, the old old, you know, English sort of king's power to pardon. Uh, and it's something we the founders sort of chose to keep as sort of an escape hatch. Uh, to to prevent sort of the you know when when you have things like the unpopular uh, you know rule of the, uh, the the vocal political mob sort of calling for someone's head um, and I think it it's it can be uh, an, a very important part and I, I think probably the best example of of the you know correct good use of of the power of parting or commuting commuting sentences goes back to Gerald Ford who in an effort uh, which essentially cost him his his, his presidency. Uh, I think you can make that argument, obviously, um, pardon Richard Nixon. Yeah. And it's also the same time pardoned uh, people who had evaded the draft and sort of a, a you know, attempt to, to, you know, create a new national unity after Watergate um, and, and Vietnam. So uh, I, I, I would prefer to keep that power uh, residing in the president where it is. Uh, I think if you open up to Congress. Uh, then you you do get into more of this politicizing justice, and, and Congress can still you no, know, Congress can still certainly register its discontent as 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 I'm sure members are right now, um, saying this is ridiculous, this is terrible, and and you know people can make their decisions uh, next November. So sure, yeah, I think just generally speaking, I'm much more uh, inclined to be in favor of measures that limit presidential power in ways that are short of uh, not reelecting a president or impeaching him. And I think you're maybe a little less comfortable with with any of those introducing any kind of constraints, whether they're legislative or, you know, constitutional changes is my sense. Right. No, I mean, I guess, I guess sort of there's it's almost a weird thing of, of you look, the founders chose to give the president limited power and, and limit the president's power in a whole very whole much, bunch of areas. But in a couple places, they said we will give the president almost absolute power yep. um, on very limited circumstances. Um, so I, 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 I sort of res- respect that. And I, I think when the president exercises that power, he necessarily takes on a lot uh, uh, personally that, you know, the whole political burden of that exercise is is on the president, which is, of course, also one of the reasons why uh, so often presidents don't commute. Uh, or or grant pardons till sort of the you know the last right. couple days in office. Yeah. Um, so you know I, I I'm okay. The other thing, I'll just, just on the merits, I'll just throw this out here. Um, Roger Stone may be sort of a, a weird, creepy character. Oh yeah, uh, but, <laughs> no question. Also, I mean, like, there is there is a consideration where if, if someone came to you on the street and and it and you didn't know that the uh, accused was Roger Stone. And said, "Hey, do you think the president, you know, in the era of COVID, uh, do you think the president ought to uh, commute a sentence uh, of a 67-year-old man, nonviolent offender, uh, unlikely to offend again, who would be put in the federal, uh, you know, who would be based on his age, uh, you know, subject to higher risk from COVID, put it into the, the federal prison system?" I don't think a whole lot of, of reasonable people would say, "Yeah, it doesn't make sense to use our limited." 
prison resources to to house someone who is a nonviolent and and again not even nonviolent but his his crimes were procedural in nature. Uh, um, so I, you know I'm just throwing that out there for if if you take if you take the name Roger Stone out of the equation, uh, does that change uh, your view sure. of the president's action? Yeah, I, I, and, I, and I guess I, if I feel that the president's action were in any significant way motivated by compassion, that that might change my view of it. But I uh, I have trouble accepting that, that that premise. But but yeah, that is I, I agree. If I could accept that premise, then I would maybe be a lot more okay with it. So. There we go. And of course, that because, as you mentioned, this is a commutation, we will this will be an ongoing thing, because I imagine that Roger Stone will work to clear his try to clear his name to get his uh, get his conviction reversed, though. I don't know that he'll really be successful with at that. I would expect, given the evidence against him, that might be an uphill battle. Well, given given the um, just the nature of what is appealable. Mm-hmm. Right. OK. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's I think that's the issue, right? So much of these are factual findings, and and it's difficult to get a, a factual finding overturned on appeal. Ah, good Not point. Impossible. But good point. It's it's a much higher uh, burden to, yeah. to bear. And so you could actually even say, then, kind of going back to your argument, that if, if President Trump had just wished to sort of just scoff at rule of law, he would have just pardoned him entirely, as opposed yeah. to commuting his sentence, which does kind of track a little more with your kind of compassionate argument, because what, what a commutation says is it's not that, well, I don't think you did it. It's just saying, well, you did it, but you've, you've suffered enough or you've served enough or what have you. And that's a very yeah. different, that's a very different message. So yeah, I think that's uh, that, that's an interesting point you raised there. All right, well, let's move on to what I thought was our, going to be our first story of the day. Uh, it's kind of a two-parter, I guess, in a way. So This week, President Trump and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, close personal friend of Jay Carson, no, not really, um, (laughs) made clear the administration's intent to pressure state and local governments to open schools for in-person education, despite significant increases in coronavirus cases in a majority of states that followed those stay-at-home, easing of those stay-at-home restrictions. President Trump said, we're very much going to put pressure on governors and everybody else to open the schools, to get them open. And the argument's basically that the social, psychological, educational costs of keeping many of the over 50 million school-aged children at home, combined with that economic hardship faced by parents who have to balance employment and childcare, that all of that outweighs the harm from an increase in coronavirus cases that is likely would be caused by widespread school reopenings. And the president has also said that reluctance to open schools is largely political, saying they think it's going to be good for them politically, so they keep the schools closed. No way. The president's also said that he disagrees with the CDC's guidance on school reopenings and closing, and that he and Secretary DeVos have threatened to withhold federal funding to schools that don't reopen. Now, there's a separate issue here with higher education and visas, which we'll get to in a minute. But before we get to that, what do you think about the administration's kind of move, push here, Jay? With K through twelve, you know, on the one end, I, I think we we should note that um, uh, you know this the findings that uh, listen, kids is particularly younger kids um, being out of school. Um, there, there is sort of a greater overall risk uh, 
to them missing out on education, missing out on, on sort of the social services in some cases that, that are obtained through the schools, uh, missing out on um, uh, all these other uh, factors. It's the isolation, the psychic toll it takes on, on younger kids who, who need this socialization. Uh, and in the American, I want to say it's the American Academy of Pediatrics, if I'm misstating the name of the uh, group, I apologize. But they, I mean, they had issued a recommendation uh, on this saying, listen, given that uh, from what we've seen, uh, children, again, particularly younger children, are less likely to contract uh, COVID uh, when they do. It tends to be milder cases uh, and balanced against these these other factors. It's, you know, the sort of the, the presumption ought to be uh, that you return to school um, in person, uh, at least, you know, as, as much as is, is feasible. So, you know, I, I think the president making that statement is, you know, maybe he's wading into stuff that he doesn't need to wade into, which is would not be unusual, of course, for him. Um, but I think most local school districts are going to make their own decisions based on uh, things like, um, one, how, how they can manage a, you know, social, socially distant uh, learning environment, uh, you know, what their, their capacity, just the physical space is. Uh, you know, are, are there, you know, hybrid uh, me- methods that uh, they can do sort of, you know, kids coming to school a couple times a week and then other times uh, remotely, uh, maybe more remote learning for older kids. Um, uh, you know, so I, I, I would say this is sort of Trump being Trump making a statement. I don't know that uh, a whole lot's going to happen with the, the federal funding stuff. Um I'm not sure he can simply just uh, cut that or or stop the flow of that, uh, which isn't a ton of money anyway. So I think these these decisions are still going to be end up being made at the state and local level, um, which I think is probably the the, the right thing. So yeah, you know, I get the sense. And I wanted to get your view on this, but President Trump really doesn't seem to have any particular concern or love for for federalism and certainly school uh k through 12 schooling has you know traditionally been one of the most local controlled sort of thing and i would think that people who you know have that sort of deep concern and belief that federalism is is an important thing especially in something like education and I do. yeah so would have would have a problem with the president of the united states saying we're going to exert great pressure to make this thing make make this happen would that be yeah I, I think I, so i mean I, I look at it as more of a this is sort of his way of saying, I think kids should go back to school. Sure. Uh, when, and, you, uh, when you translate it through, when you put that through the sort of the Trump, yeah, Trump translating, it is, you know, I'm the man, these, you know, <laughs> these other weak need people aren't going to do this and I'm going to cut funds and all that. But it essentially comes down to just sort of announcing what his preference is. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I mean, there was some talk about he would maybe try to find a way to slow CARES Act funding, that sort of thing for schools that don't reopen or what have you. And, you know, that, that's a that's actually a, well, a fairly significant uh, amount of money, so $13.2 billion for K through 12 schools. But then, well, the thing about this, of course, is a lot of that money, and I couldn't find a figure, hasn't been spent yet just because right. it's so difficult for it to work its way through the system and get various approvals and that sort of thing from school boards and other, you know, other authorities. And so it's not like Congress authorizes this money and the, the bill is signed in mid-April and all of a through sudden. Check, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And to me, one of the big problems, of course, is the, the amount of uh, all the resources that are required to open safely because i agree with you that you know if schools can open safely they they certainly should 
There was one analysis I saw that said, on average, a school district would have to spend around $2 million to implement, you know, safe op opening, reopening procedures. And if you multiply that by like 13,500 districts in the U.S., you're at around $27 billion. Um, and that, you know, that's a big chunk of money. And so I think that a more, well, a better approach might have been to say, hey, we want schools to reopen. It's important for them to do it safely. And we're going to authorize some more money for this and try to get this to the schools as quickly as possible. I mean, mid-May, the House passes this measure that would provide $90 billion to the Department of Education. And that was a split. Between, I'll do it. Well, it was a split between uh, uh, K through 12 schools. They would get a just shy of 60 billion and then higher education would get the rest. And I think that maybe you can say, well, that would be too much. At least conservatives might say that, but I think there's a compromise here and it would have been, and I feel like given the fact that president Trump doesn't seem to be uh, much of a conservative and is fine with spending money that he could have you know, done something and said, well, the school should reopen and they need a little bit more to reopen. And so I would encourage Congress to work together and put, you know, put a package together. And, right. but of course that's not really a, Donald Trump doesn't really seem to care a whole lot about policy per se. That's, that's kind of messy uh, sort of thing, but I'm not against it. Especially you mentioned that, you know, kids don't contract it as, as much and as severely. And also there's some preliminary research that suggests that they might actually be a little less likely to spread it as well. And so I do think we need to balance these things, but ultimately, I do believe it's a local local issue because in some areas, you know, it, it might be it might just not be advisable given you know given the number of oh, cases. Yeah, yeah, in some areas, there's going to be outbreaks that. Yeah, that I mean, if you're you in Houston a, a right now, yeah, you're thinking, yeah, well, I don't know, situation. About, exactly. Uh, in in other areas, uh, it, you know, it you know you may be able to reopen almost seamlessly, right? Yeah. I mean, if you have a you live in a rural area. Uh, uh, you outbreaks, you've got, you know, you can space everybody out. I mean, that's so, yeah, that's that's with the typical rationale uh, behind conservatives that you leave these decisions to the uh, the local authorities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and here's here's the other the other piece of that has always been uh, because if you don't like it, uh, well, the school board meetings next Monday at the, you know, uh, whatever, you can go and yell at them uh, yeah. yourself. I mean, it's, you know, you don't have to hire lobbyists, go to Washington or have some connection with the president. Uh, you can you can run into your school board member at the grocery store and, uh, you know, let them have it. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's, sure. you know, again, yeah, yeah. that just goes back to the idea that, you know, that local government is is uh, more responsive. So. Right. Well, you know, I said there was kind of a related part to this, and that is while we talked about- This one is a what's necessarily, that? I think. Yeah, well, because, you know, as you mentioned, as I agree on the local, on the, sorry, K through 12 level, maybe there's sort of limited leverage, but it's a different story in higher education. Uh, the administration, I would argue, has a greater ability to, well, either incentivize or coerce, depending on how you want to look at it, higher education institutions open up. and. One of these levers involves international students. They make up around five and a half percent of the U.S. higher education population. They contribute billions of dollars to the economy. And most importantly, for a lot of schools, they typically pay like full sticker price or at least yeah. more than U.S. U.S. residents. And that's been a big deal for a lot of schools, especially as states have cut funding for uh, for for state schools. And now prior to the pandemic. 
the immigration policy for students was that international students must take some in-person classes to qualify for a student visa. But then when the national emergency was declared for the pandemic, uh, ICE issued new guidance that allowed international students to be all online and further said that that guidance would remain in effect for the duration of the emergency. So this recent change where they said, no, actually, you have to have some online, you have to have some in-person classes or uh, or transfer to a school that has them or your visa will be revoked, especially coming so close to the beginning of the fall semester. This caught institutions really by surprise. And I believe that the, uh, it calls for them to declare by June, sorry, July 15th, whether they will have in-person classes. And that's a really really short window for a big decision. And again, of course, if you're an international student currently in the United States, that's a that's a huge problem for you, certainly. And there are a lot of folks in that position. Now, Harvard, which announced earlier that it would have all online classes this year and MIT, which is going to be almost all online, they've challenged this rule in court, arguing that it puts higher education sorry, higher education institutions in what they call the untenable situation of either moving forward with their carefully calibrated, thoughtful, and difficult decisions to proceed with their curricula fully or largely online in the fall of 2020, or to attempt with just weeks before classes resume to provide in-person education despite the grave risk to public health and safety that such a change would entail. So that's where we're at right now. Jay, what do you think about this change in, it's not a rule, but a change in guidance from, uh, from the Trump administration here? You know, I'm, I'm largely sort of agnostic on this. Um, I, I would agree that, look, international students uh, are a great boon to uh, our economy in terms of uh, bringing talent here, educating talent here. Um, it's a great boon to our educational system. And as you mentioned, they, they tend to pay full sticker price. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, you know, whether I think this is maybe just, just sort of clumsily uh, uh, put together, uh, you know, guidance and, and again, it's, it's guidance and not necessarily a, a law. So um, in some respects, I think maybe, uh, you know, Harvard and MIT are making a, a bigger deal out of this. Uh, a lot of schools are, you know, colleges going to in-person, partial in-person classes anyway, and to plan to do that. Um, so, uh, you know, I, again, I'm, it's, it's weird. I, I have to say, I don't have any strong opinions here. Um, but it, it seems as if, you know, we're not precluding international students from coming here or, or taking classes. Uh, uh, they could, you know, well, I, I guess I'm. <clears throat> should I should clarify the? Would the international students actually have to take the in-person classes, yeah. or is it just exactly. a matter? Exactly. No, of the international the, yeah. students yeah. would have to. So let's say you're an international student, and let's say you have a some sort of an underlying health condition or something like that. That that doesn't matter. There's no exception for that. So you would basically be told, well, you have to take an in-person class, or you have to lose your student visa. And again, well, I, this, I think there is there. Look, there is sort of a, a, a sense of. Um, why? Why do we would we grant visas to people who aren't coming here? Well, no, this this applies no, to people no, who are here as well. Are here, and right? again, no, and and this is something. This is something. So I think that's the way. It's what I'm saying. Clumsily drafted. Well, it's more than clumsy, Jay. I mean, it's the fact that it's the fact that I said earlier 
when, you know, when this all started that for the duration of this emergency, we're going to change our guidance, our, our allowance for student visas. And then with literally, I mean, school starts for me in five weeks, that all of a sudden we're going to reverse that. I mean, that's more than clumsy. That's, that's, uh, that's, I mean, I think that well, is it's arbitrary and capricious, you know, and th that's the thing, <laughs> of course. Well, it's, it's, this is interesting from a more of a technical standpoint, because, because it's not a rule, it's not in the exact, in the same way, subject to the, the that standard of review under the administrative right. procedure. Right. Act. Because it's, it doesn't, the APA of act does not apply. But even so, that doesn't mean that the administration can do whatever it wants. And so there's, there's a lower bar for the administration that the cross, but I think even so they don't get over that lower bar. I mean, had, for instance, had ICE not previously said that their guidance would remain in place throughout the emergency and, or even if they had, but if had, if the revision had come earlier, I think maybe there, there's a chance that, that, that would have been upheld. But my, my guess, my strong sense is that what's going to happen here is there's going to be a federal judge who is rightly going to issue uh, an injunction against this going forward. And then once students start in class and we have international students in the class, it's going to be a lot harder to kind of reverse course on that sort of thing. Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, the, by the time I think there, there's going to be an injunction and we will proceed. And by that time, the, by the time the injunction gets appealed, uh, if it does, look, everybody's operating under this and we're already halfway through the school year. So, yeah, it's just again, I I don't know who this come, who this where this kind of thing starts, but it just continue. It shouldn't surprise me anymore, but I guess it does kind of continually somehow still surprise me how incompetent the administration seems to be in promulgating important rules and regulate they just don't do a very good job of it you know yeah and so no, that, I, I i can't i can't disagree with that yeah, absolutely absolutely as, as i've said before you know i I'm, I'm in many ways thankful for that because i think it is it is saved it has saved us from a lot of bad policies and on the conservative side and now i don't i know you don't you don't disagree you don't agree with this policy but i'm sure you'd agree more generally there have been a number of cases where there were policies you would have liked to have seen. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It was ju just poor execution it, that then kind of mucked it all up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, let's move on to, well, a spate, a spate, I can't believe I used that word, a spate of Supreme Court rulings that were very eagerly awaited. Of course, the end of the term is always the time where we tend to get the really big, important decisions that everyone's looking forward to in some way. And I think one of the most eagerly awaited decisions of this term was on uh, President Trump's financial records. And actually, it was two decisions here the court ruled on, one involving prosecutors in New York who were seeking information relating to an investigation of uh, alleged hush money paid to porn actress Stormy Daniels and Playboy... Former Play porn actress. Thank you. Yeah. And Playboy, former Playboy playmate Karen McDougal, and the other one involving congressional requests to several of the president's accounting firms for the release of information. Now, in both cases, the vote was seven to two, with the court ruling that New York should have access to the requested records, but that lower courts didn't sufficiently consider the separation of powers issues in the congressional requests. And so the yeah. practical impact of this is that nobody outside of the New York prosecutors and the grand jury is going to see any of the president's financial records before the 2020 election. Um, 
Right. Unless unless they get leaked. Right. Unless they get leaked from the grand jury. That's which I'm, I'm sure they will. Not, I'm sure there will be no leak. Well, we'll see what happens. Right. I don't know. We'll yeah. see what happens. But so, Jay, I thought we could take these case, these one case at a time, starting with the New York case. And that's Trump versus Vance. What do you think about about the ruling here that essentially that that the financial firms have to turn over the records that were requested by the uh, by the New York prosecutors? Well, I, I think the, the the Vance case is is probably a little more problematic. Um, than, than the the Mazars case. Oh, okay, interesting. But, but um, either way, this is this is one of these uh, these situations where I will, like Scalia, uh, say, "Look, I I really don't. I'm not crazy about the result of this, but I think that's the right law. I think they I think they got it right by and large. Um, uh, you know, and and actually, these these cases are really fun to read." Um, if you're into history, because the, all of both of them have sort of a whole lengthy discussion of the uh, trial of Aaron Burr, uh-huh. um, yeah. and uh, you know that that was sort of the the precedent was uh, Thomas Jefferson was subpoenaed uh, by Burr. Uh, papers of Jefferson were subpoenaed by Burr uh, in his defense, uh, and and the court uh, back in 1807 said, yeah, that's that's legit. You can subpoena the president. Um, uh, in that case, it was. Uh, more birth Sixth Amendment rights that were in question, um, uh, and and then that was you know essentially affirmed in in Nixon in seventy uh, four. Um, so uh, you know I, I I think there's that's the, the the correct ruling right that the president is not beyond uh, subpoena power. Uh, that said, the uh, the dissent and uh, well, one of the concurrences would say, look, I'd I think there still needs to be uh, sort of a, a heightened standard when you're going after the president, and that standard would essentially be that look, you you can't get this information somewhere else. Uh, the idea is would be to uh, prevent sort of just general harassment of the president, because look, there are a lot of local prosecutors out there who would who would like to make a name for themselves, uh, and uh, you know what better way to do so than saying I'm going to you know pursue an investigation and indict, indict Donald Trump. Um, you know, and even if you lose, well, you're the crusader who who took on Donald Trump. So I think it invites a lot of mischief uh, now that the, the majority said, look, there's remedies for that, both in state and federal court. Um, and and they're right. So I, I, I think that's a matter of there will be some mischief uh, and uh, there will be some some work in this through the lower courts. But all in all, you know, I the principle I think is 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 sound. Now, the the other one interesting thing I, I think that uh, in Justice Thomas's dissent that no one's really hit that much on. You know, this this case had to do with, look, are these subpoenas facially invalid? Right? Is it just a matter of law? You can't subpoena the president, and that's the court pretty much unanimously said no. Yeah, of course, you can subpoena the president. Uh, and Thomas's hits Thomas hits on the well. You can subpoena him, but you know when it comes to enforceability, uh, is kind of when the rubber hits the road, um, so, and that's a little different question. And that's where these other uh, concerns of of impeding the yeah. executive. But, uh, but in, in this in this in this case, I mean the uh, the actual it's not the president who's being subpoenaed here; it's the, the president's financial companies who have these records. So, I mean, this is about as as little of, of a. Uh, 
of an imp- impediment, whatever, uh, impeding of the president. As you sure. can imagine, it's not like a Bill Clinton being, you know, called to testify. It's not being called for deposition, right? Exactly. And so the president actually doesn't have to do anything. It's just these financial firms who were completely willing to release these records in the first place, basically. So this is about is so I agree that we need to weigh, you know, the nature of the request uh, and the burden that is put on the president, because the president is different in many ways, even though he certainly is not above the law. But I think even based on that standard, it seems to me that this this type of request in a criminal case that does not seem to be at all a spurious sort of thing, I think this is completely legitimate. And so I, while I understand Alito and Thomas's uh, concerns, I, I just completely do not agree with them that they raise to the level of where this minimal, this minimal request cannot be granted in, in the investigation of a criminal case. Yeah, I, I think that's, I, that's probably about where, where I am too. Okay. Now, it's a little different when we get to the congressional information case. That's Trump versus Mazars. So I am definitely interested in hearing what you what you think about that, because, again, it was another seven to two vote. But this time it went the other way. And it, it's really characterizing it. I guess it's not necessarily a win or a loss in that the court just said, well, the lower courts didn't consider this issue enough. So it's kind of putting it back right. on to them. So it's not like it's not like the court said, well, the president doesn't have to release these records to Congress. They just said, well, let the, let the lower courts kind of consider the yeah, separation it, of powers issues. And exactly. Yeah. The, the court, the court, what it did was sort of announced a new test. There's sort of a, yeah. a four part test and, and it is a, a sort of more difficult test to uh, to satisfy, and then uh, sent that back down to the, the lower court, um, which again I, I think that's probably you know the the correct decision. Um, the the Mazars case being a little bit uh, more problematic because it's not a criminal investigation; it is just a uh, you know the powers of, of Congress to investigate uh, and or harass uh, you know, the executive branch. So. I, you know, I think there there is necessarily more more care there taken. Um, that if you have uh, political actors who are seeking, uh, you know, solely and and whether it's it's a, under the guise of oversight and and look honestly, the um, you know Jared uh, Jared Nadler had sort of uh, spoken, you know, back at the uh, after the Democrats took control of the House, uh, putting to, you know putting together subpoena cannon. Uh, to to fire at the uh, the president and the executive branch, and the court seemed to to, to say, look, this is this is out of bounds. This is uh, ridiculous. You you of course Congress has some oversight power, but that is not a, uh, a power for just a, a fishing expedition. Um, so you think and, the uh, court should you think the court should then try to uh, uh, discern Congress's motives? That that's a legitimate exercise of judicial power. Would you say? Um, yeah, I think the the base comes down to look does does Congress have a legitimate legislative uh, interest in in doing this? So, um, so I, I think so, and that's that's really that's not that hard of a, a test to meet, probably. And you don't think they meet uh, it here? Uh, I guess I mean the court hasn't decided well, I, on this. I guess the, so. The that's court, a different the court issue. Says hey, yeah. go back and and try again and show your work. Uh, and to me, you know, I went when I when I read that, I thought. It kind of sounds like, well, they just don't want to deal with this issue before 
the election. They kind of hope it goes away because in reading Robert's opinion, you know, he said, you know, we don't really get many cases like this. Thank God. Uh, he didn't say that, but you know, and it's almost yeah. always better to let the other branches just kind of work out some sort of accommodation. And I think the hope right. probably. And he points uh, out that's the way it's worked for 200 yeah. some years. And so, you know, I kind of think the hope is that, well, this will go away in some in some sense. And the court didn't want to inject itself into this right before an election, because for sure, if they had ruled that Congress did have the right to get these records, which I believe would be the correct ruling in this instance, that that would have been a huge political issue before the election. And I just think the, the court didn't want it. I think Roberts is very sensitive to that sort of thing. And so the court's liberals knew they didn't have the votes to kind of get the uh, approval that they wanted for Congress to get those records. And so this was kind of the compromise position. But, you know, in reading, um, it seemed to me at least Justice Thomas, who has kind of been the lonely dissenter in he's, a lot of these yeah, things. And yeah, his position is a little more of an absolutist position, it seems to me, that Basically, if there's no impeachment proceeding, the administration can refuse to provide any information. I mean, that that to me is what I take away from that. Yeah. And that would that be would that be your read of Thomas's I mean, he, position? He, he, you know, argues, look, in the, the Constitution, the sole remedy uh, for presidential misconduct is impeachment. Right. Um, so, look, it, unless you're looking into impeachment, um, it, you know, none of your business. So then if you would say that if Congress uh, launched, if Congress were doing this as part of an impeachment inquiry like they had before, then that would have been a legitimate and that would have been, you know, perfectly fine. But outside of that, or I don't even know if you agree with Thomas's position, do you? Um, not not entirely, mm -hmm. um, because, uh, well, again, you have to look at the, the specifics of the, if, the case. And again, this is um, we're talking about lots and lots of subpoenas and. I think each of those subpoenas has to be sort of judged on its own merits. Right. Yeah, right? I, I agree with you there. Because I, I you think know, and that's, yeah. that's sort of what the court said. And I think that's what some of the court's liberals recognized um, is is if we have this this uh, unrestrained right of Congress to to seek uh, information from our president just on fishing expeditions, that's not going to go well for for either party or the presidency as an institution. Yeah. Uh, unless there are some guardrails. Uh, as as to what information that, that there has to be some, you know, some connection to a legislative purpose uh, other than just like, hey, we're harassing the guy and hey, we're going to you know look at all his finances and maybe we find something. Sure. Um, and, but would you also agree that the the presumption from the court should be that the court that sorry, should be that Congress does have a legitimate purpose if they say they do and sort of the burden of proof is on on the person to demonstrate that there is not one. In other words, does Congress get the benefit of the doubt here? Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think that's that's going to be sort of up to the these these lower courts to. I, I should have pulled the opinion up in front of me before we started talking. But um, see, to I, me, I mean, to me, a part of of judicial restraint, which I'm a big fan of, is is right, that not, not going into motive. I, I, well, yeah, just in general, trying to give the democratically elected branches to the benefit of the doubt, whether it's the executive or Congress and not, you know, substituting your judgment for, for their judgment. So that's why I was asking that. Well, in a lot of ways, what, what Roberts does is sort of, is sort of punt back yeah. to that. And, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't use the words political question. Right. Um, but, but sort of implies that, 
look, you guys sort this out and take a look at the polls and see, you know, President Trump, take a look at uh, how much this hurts you not to give us information. Congress, take a look at how much people uh, may think you're jerks for uh, interfering with the office of the presidency. And, and you know, you, you do that calculation and, and come up with some sort of a, a compromise as we have for the past 200 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that, that seems harder and harder than ever these does, days. Yeah. But but yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I we uh, there are, like I said, there were a number of important Supreme Court cases. And one that I was practically itching to talk about uh, is that the unanimous ruling that states have the right to fine or replace presidential electors who don't vote in accordance with the popular vote for president in their state. And in the opinion, which is written by Justice Kagan, she wrote, uh, the state instructed instructs its electors that they have no ground for reversing the vote of millions of its citizens. That direction accords with the Constitution, as well as with the trust of a nation that here we, the people, rule. So Kagan also made it clear that this doesn't mean that states can necessarily bind electors to a candidate who dies before the November election and the January meeting of the Electoral College, which actually has happened uh, before. And so right now we're at is there are currently 32 states plus D.C. that require that electors vote for the winner of the popular vote in their state. But only 15 have provisions for fining or replacing electors who fail to do so. And so uh, I, I don't I, I don't know. I was surprised by this decision. I was surprised by the unanimity and I was disappointed by the outcome. But, Jay, what do you think about it before we get into my views on this? I. I uh... Hey, and if I'm if I'm agreeing with Elena Kagan, um, I you know I'm not I'm not sure where we are, but um, <laughs> no, I, I think I think that's the right decision. And and even if it's you know this, we wandered into such, in the last uh, election and in this coming one, we've wandered into such such bizarre territory that that things that were in many cases never contemplated are now being contemplated. Uh, there was. Uh, an, an effort by the Clinton campaign to influence uh, electors, right? And, you know, well, Donald Trump is, you know, in, in bed with Russia and so forth. Um, and and that, I think, is is concerning to, to our democracy. Because, uh, look, if you don't have to, to really campaign um, uh, in, all, in all the states and you can just uh, campaign with those handful of electors, uh, that, that essentially eliminates the vote of a lot of people. Um, also, I, I think a lot of these these laws, uh, particularly the, the movement, the discussion of well, what, what if we make the uh, president, uh, you know, compel our electors to follow the the, the nationwide popular vote? Um, uh, that's problematic again because uh, it calls into into question the legitimacy of elections, the, the participation of of uh, citizens in those elections. So I, I think it's good that look, here's the rule. Right. Here's the unanimous Supreme Court. All nine of them have said this is the rule. This is the way we're doing it. Um, so uh, whether whether you're crazy about that rule or not, it's important that we have the rule. And now it's sure. it's yeah. plainly set. Yeah. On, on that, I completely agree, though. I think that they got it completely wrong. Uh, you know, I certainly agree that there's this idea that we the people rule and I I'm all for that. But to me, when I go back to the text of the Constitution. It says that the electors, the electors shall vote. And so my question was, well, OK, what do we mean by vote? Well, unless you're in North Korea or something like that, a vote is a formal expression of choice. 
So choice is an inherent element of a vote. And so the framers were not stupid people. They understood language. And so if they had meant to bind electors, they would not have used the word vote. Maybe they could have used ratify or convey or something else. So, and it also kind of suggests that, well, the framers created this, this step, this part of this institution that is essentially superfluous. And so to me, it just defies logic. I'm not saying that it doesn't have a practical, a good practical effect. But it, to me, that's saying, well, we're going to put the practical, pragmatic effects of this over what the actual intent of the framers was and just the basic language of the 12th Amendment and, and the and the article was it Article one, section two, I think, or something like that, that, mm-hmm. that talks about electors. And so the argument, especially the argument that Kagan, uh, well, that they all advance saying that, well, you know, electors don't don't do this very often. So that basically means that the framers must not have intended them to be free agents. I think, no, that, that, that's not a, that doesn't logically follow in any way. And so I just think that they wanted a unanimous outcome and that was the one that they could get to. And they just conveniently ignored both the text and the intent of the framers. And so maybe that's judicial activism for a good cause. I don't know, but I think it was absolutely the, the wrong decision. Uh, but but would you? I mean, if you adopted the the idea that only the electors uh, vote, um, I mean, doesn't that make all of the you know two hundred eighty million people who are, are voting uh, for the president doesn't it make that superfluous? Well, no, it doesn't because I mean the electors are the electors are chosen by you know, chosen by the parties and they are chosen with the understanding that they are. They will be people who will be likely to, very likely to follow the popular vote, which they have been, in fact, right? Because this, this has right. not, as Kagan points out, this is generally not but, but under, an issue. But under your rationale, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need a popular vote. No, you wouldn't. You're right. They could just choose the – yeah, I, I don't see anything. I mean, I, I, off the top of my head. No, but – There you have to it. Me, Mike, but, Mike but, will deny you your right to vote for president. But, but to me, that is a defect of the Constitution, and you don't – you don't change defects in the Constitution by interpreting them away, you know, just like you would say that there is no right to privacy or right to abortion in the Constitution and say, well, you can't just create one out of whole cloth. You can't ignore what the Constitution says. You can't ignore the intent of the framers because it's more convenient to do that. I mean, that's I don't see how this is any different. That's you. Look, you make a good point. I, I'm not uh, I'm not saying that. If you're a, a strict constructionalist, uh, originalist sort of view, um, but I, I don't, I, I don't know that that, again, I don't know that that originalist view holds up entirely because I, I that I, I believe that there was uh, at the founding, right? There were there were popular votes held. Now, again, that was of course limited to, uh, you know, typically white white male landowners, um, but. But there was a sense that this was not just um, uh, the electors who were choosing sure, the president, absolutely. as compared as compared to uh, senators who were plainly at that point appointed by the state governments, right. uh, of their various states. So I think you can look at that that dynamic too. That, right, if if the, the founders had meant this the president just to be sort of chosen, elected, appointed by uh, these electors, 
they could have have made yeah. that as clear as they they did with with the Senate. At and the that time. that wasn't. I mean, and so if that, that were the case, if a state just decided bizarrely to say that you know no, uh, we're not going to have a popular vote for president, and I don't even know. Again, I'd have to. I think you just kind of brought this up uh, offhand, but but I think that would be a lot harder to justify because of you know looking at the intent of the framers and practice at that point and so forth. But that's a different. That's certainly a different issue. You know, I guess the only way I can see this being a reasonable argument, at, and I still don't think it's quite good enough, is the Tenth Amendment argument that they made, basically saying that, well, you know, the Constitution is silent on whether or not electors can be bound. So therefore, it, since it doesn't prohibit it, states have the right to do so. But again, there's that, I get stuck, Jay, on that, what vote? They said the electors vote, you know, and, and to me, vote inherently implies choice. I just have a hard time. Maybe they screwed up the wording. I, I don't know. But to, to me, it's just, I don't know. It's just not quite, uh, not quite there. So. Well, we got, we got you on the one side and uh, unanimous Supreme Court on the other. You know, exactly. So, so I, I, I'll, I'm willing to admit here that pretty clearly that there's a lot more brain power and, and experience in nine Supreme Court justices than me. But for me, it just doesn't track unless you say it's sort of a, uh, it's sort of elevating the pragmatic concerns over faithful interpretation of the Constitution. And if, if that's the if that's the real baseline rationale, OK, I, I get that, certainly. But that's the only way I can make this make sense. All right. So. All right. Well, you know, before we, there are a number of things we wanted to get to and we will get to on our bonus show, like, for instance, that Supreme Court ruling about uh, the Affordable Care Act, birth control opt out procedures. And uh, let's see that another religion case about ministerial exceptions in uh, hiring and firing for religious institutions and there are a number of other things as well. But that will be for our supporters only bonus show before we get to that before we go today we always like to close with a recommendation jay you got a recommendation for us this week oh gosh um uh, you know what i'm I'm reading right now uh is uh, it's a book by uh barbara tuckman um oh wow. probably best best known for uh world war one historian Guns Guns of August, August. yeah uh uh, it's called the first salute, and and what it's about is the American naval uh, expeditions, and and sort of uh, it's a view of the American Revolution from the West Indies. And it, the first salute refers to there was this this uh, Dutch island uh, that was the first to recognize uh, an American ship, and and actually saluted them with a cannon as oh. as you are a uh, independent uh, nation. Uh, and that this Dutch island was um, really integral to the revolution and that it allowed smuggling of um, uh, gunpowder uh, to the to the colonies. So it's it's just a really fun. I mean, it's it's, uh, you know, some some of my favorite things it's like, you know, boats and naval history and America uh, all, all together. Um, so, yeah, I'm partway through that and, and I'm liking that a lot. So I guess that's my recommend. And it's it's cool. I, gosh, I'm trying to think when it was written. It's, it's from a, a while back. It's it's nothing new, but it's just one of these things I, I happened to find in a, a used bookstore somewhere and finally got around to, to reading it. So that sounds really cool. Um, yeah. My recommendation recommendation this week is a TV show uh, called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. It's an NBC show, but you can watch it on Hulu. I've, I've just totally gotten sucked into it. It's about this computer programmer in San Francisco or somewhere in through there who 
can actually hear people's thoughts in musical numbers that only she can hear. And it's a sort of a interesting, interesting concept. It's a, I guess the way I describe it's a show with a lot of heart and really good musical numbers as well. So, and it's got uh, uh, Peter Gallagher, who I love, who is a very, in a, in a very restrained performance in many ways, because he plays a guy who has lost the use of almost all of his uh, bodily functions, can't move, that sort of thing. And, and Lauren Graham, who I love for, for so many reasons, but it's a, it's a fun show. Like I said, it's got a lot of heart. It's a, it's a really uh, big, uh, big hearted show. And I just found out that it was renewed for a second season. So I'm really thrilled about that. And I found myself kind of moving more, you know, a lot of people like these kind of deep, dark, kind of depressing sort of shows. And that's never really been my thing. It's definitely not my wife's thing. And so whenever I find a show that's kind of feels kind of happy and positive, even though it has these dark moments, I tend to gravitate toward that. And so this is definitely a show like that. And if you like musical numbers, there you go. Uh, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, a lot of fun. So, all right. So that is it for our show today. But again, if you'd like that second full-length episode this week and every week, you can get that by, by becoming a Patreon supporter. That's patreon.com slash politics guys. And if you uh, uh, cannot uh, find out or forget that link, whatever, it's always included, included, included. Yeah. In the show notes. <laughs> All right. My God, I need more coffee or something. Anyway. Uh, well, so we'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you'd share your favorite episodes on social media. If you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. Also check out our bipartisan politics subreddit, uh, URLs in the show notes, as well as our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. That's me. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.